Let's pray. Teach us to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a particular range of sound that I cannot hear. If I had the right equipment, I could tell you exactly what the Hertz cycle range was, but I think it's probably easier if I just tell you that it is the exact same range as my wife's voice when she asks me to do something. Now, last week Jesus said, if you have ears, you need to listen. And if you're like me, you absentmindedly reached up and touched them and it was kind of like, hey Jesus, <laughs> you created me? So don't you remember? I mean, come on, I, they're right there. You gave me two of them, right? But if we go back two weeks to our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah, the 29th chapter, our ears may have picked up something that the prophet said. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of the document. And out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord. And the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now, quite a few people are deaf to what the Bible says. There are some possible reasons. Number one, as a child, their pastor yelled so loudly it damaged their hearing. Number two, what they have seen with their eyes is so painful that they can no longer hear anything. Number three, they don't like the words that get used in church, especially the ones that talk about sin. And so they cover their ears and sing, la, 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 I can't hear you. Or number four, they have mastered the art of pretending they cannot hear. Kind of like the homeless guy standing on the street corner out in Kapolei that says, I am deaf, please help. And yet he's always listening to his iPod. Oh, and by the way, if somebody yells at him, it doesn't matter how loudly the person who yelled at him is, this person hears it and responds very quickly. At the beginning of last week's gospel, Jesus said, if you have ears, you need to listen. Then he laid out some really bad things which were sinful. What do you think the reason for Jesus listing all those sins was? A long time ago, I was a student at the seminary. I had an entire year of seminary behind me, which means I was an expert at all things churchy, at least in my own mind. I was back in Denver. My home congregation pastor asked me if I could take somebody to the airport. I said, sure. It turned out to be the president of the California, Nevada, Hawaii district of the LCMS. Yeah, the same district I was going to get my first call into, by the way, by that district president. So I was a little nervous. We got in the car, which by the way, didn't have air conditioning. It was about 95 degrees that day. My wife and I in the front seat, the district president and his wife in the back seat. And by the way, it was a car that was about the size of a phone booth. And as we were talking, I made an offhand remark. A remark, by the way, that nobody would have even noticed at the seminary, but this was not the seminary. You see, I said something about somebody in the church body who was liberal and somebody in the church body who was conservative. Dr. Oswald said, Mitch, I found that such labels make it easy to put people into tidy, little, neat categories. But those words really aren't helpful. Separating and talking about the action of the person apart from that person is far better. Touche, and thank you, Dr. Oswald. Over the past few decades, I've had wonderful coaches help me change the way I talk. Instead of saying, oh, look at that deaf person, like they did in the scripture lesson today, they taught me to say, look at that person who happens to be deaf. This is especially helpful when you are working with children who happen to have Down syndrome or maybe are on the spectrum of either um, autism or Asperger's. You see, they are a person first. 
they are a kid first, then they also are whatever else they are, like we are whatever else we are. You and me, we are sinners with a capital S. We might be better than our neighbors. We might be better than the people that we work alongside. We might even be better than some of the people that we look around and see at church. But we're still sinners. Growing up in the Baptist church, and by the way, this is not limited to just Baptist churches. There were times I remember the pastor spitting all the way to the fourth or fifth row of pews when he said, Sinners, repent! And the finger wagging and bulging eyes and the red face told us he was serious. But on the way out of church, his blood pressure had returned to normal, heart rate, skin color were also normal, and his voice lowered and, and was no longer what we call that sermonic tone. He could be heard saying, oh, Mrs. Smith, thank you so much for those peanut butter cookies. They were marvelous. Oh, Mr. Jones, how's your mom doing? You, you need to know, I've been praying for her every day. Or, hey, little Jimmy, those are some pretty cool shoes you're wearing. You see, it was obvious he separated the sin from the sinner. For anyone who bothered to get to know him, they began to understand that he actually knew about them. And yeah, they were a sinner, but he saw beyond the sin. But for any guests, unless they were used to fire and brimstone preaching, I can see why they might want to go home and look up in the phone book, yeah, back in those days, and find the nearest universalist, unionistic church. Whenever Jesus lists sins, we can ask the question, I wonder why he listed those particular sins? Because, by the way, his lists are never exactly the same. Sometimes he highlights various sins because of the people he's talking to. Greed, power, gossip, and money whenever he's around church leaders and politicians. Other times he's more generic, like foolishness, envy, lying, pride, and gossip. Because, I mean, who hasn't done those things? The most important note is all sin is relational. Sin affects relationships between people. There are no victimless sins in the Bible. When Jesus points to a sin, his purpose is to reveal a truth about being human in a very broken world. We not only have the capacity for evil within us, our nature tends to choose us and our desires over God. And when we do, someone always gets hurt. Therefore, sin is personal. Unfortunately, what most people have decided about Jesus and his lists of sins is that he must be an accountant and not a savior. He just sits on his throne all day long counting our sins and making little tally marks every time we mess up. And when we reach a certain number of tally marks, he sends down bolts of lightning or telemarketers or COVID-19. I don't know what teachers use these days to scare kids, but I remember being told that if I crossed my eyes too long, that they were going to stay that way. And if I kept swallowing my gum, I'd starve to death because that's, uh, that gum never comes out. It just piles up until it fills up your entire stomach. Or if I didn't wash my face, eventually there was going to be so much dirt in my ears that a seed was going to find its way in there. Next thing you know, I'd have a tree growing out of my ears. Now, why did my teachers say such things? Because I was deaf to them saying things like, don't cross your eyes. Hey, 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 hey. Stop chewing gum in class. And please, please wash your face. The word preach means to earnestly advocate a belief or course of action. Preaching in its truest and purest form is proclamation. It proclaims the gospel. Pastors do not attempt to justify, argue, persuade, or scheme. They just proclaim. 
In a post-Easter monologue, St. Peter says, you know, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. God's word has the power to reach beyond our eyes and ears and embed itself in our very soul. It doesn't need to be sold or peddled. It has power in and of itself. But there is a catch. Lutherans maintain we cannot say yes to God, but we can say no. While we cannot in and of ourselves make our heart receptive and open to the gospel, we can harden our hearts and souls so that his word does not enter. Now here's an important aside. There's a bumper sticker that I occasionally see on the H1 that says, Do not mistake aloha for weakness. Likewise, we should not think just because God's word will not enter our hardened hearts and souls, that it couldn't enter our hardened hearts and souls. God could force his way into our ears, eyes, hearts, and souls, but he won't because he values our freedom, even if that freedom leads to our death. Because we are spiritually hard of hearing, or totally deaf in some cases, we forget the intention of the law is to give life, not take it away. Our relationship with God is not dependent upon us following the law. God doesn't love us more or love us less based on the number of tally marks behind each of the sins. God's relationship with us is out of love, not law. That brings us to St. James, who's going to be with us for the next four weeks in our epistle lesson. A lot of believers are uncomfortable around St. James because he is not a typical preacher. Remember when I said preaching was about proclaiming, not twisting people's arms? Well, James, like Jesus, well, he's not afraid to do a little twisting. Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw because of its emphasis on doing things, not just being something. I always looked at that in a little different light because if you don't put straw in bricks, well, the bricks crumble and the foundation is lost. Just like if we don't act on our faith, it also tends to fall apart. James is clear. Our doing things doesn't save us or make us more saved. It's a natural response to us being saved. Kind of like fruit growing on fruit trees. This brings us back to my deafness when it comes to hearing my wife when she asks me to do something. I'm not alone, especially when God asks his people to do things. It turns out there's a lot of people that experience sudden deafness just at that tone where God asks us to do something. St. James challenges us to be more than just hearers of the word. If the word stops at our ears and doesn't make its way to the rest of us, we are spiritually deaf. And by the way, the world becomes a lesser place. As Luther said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And that places it into perspective why we do what we do. There are times when Nancy says something and a minute later she asks, Did you hear me? I have three possible answers. The first is no. The second is yes, but I'm not going to do it. Neither of which bode well for me when it comes to getting dinner or where I'm going to be sleeping that night. Third option. Yes. Give me just a minute. I'm on my way. I'll get it done. That might earn me a dessert. As noted earlier, we are all sinners with a capital S. When Jesus points out our sin, he's not just reminding us that we need a Savior. He's also declaring to us that we have one. We were made in the image of God. And because of Jesus' work, we are in the process of being restored to that amazing image. This means we're capable of great courage, compassion, love, and mercy. You know, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus was written a few years before James wrote his letter. Immediately following Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not our work, it's the gift of God so that none of us boast, 
Paul added these words. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we could walk in them. Now, I don't know whether James had read Paul's letter or if they talked about it over a glass of wine, but James echoes this thought when he says, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is some, God, uh, well, God wants good to be done. He really wants it to be done. And, and by the way, he wants to do it through you. Think about that. God wants us to be his agents of grace, mercy, love, and healing in this world. But in order to do that, we're going to need a little help with first hearing his words of promise. The Oxford English Dictionary keeps track of words that are antiques. In 2017, a writer for The Economist dug up a word he had no idea we would desperately need four years later. The word is respair. It is both a noun and a verb, and it means the return of hope after a period of despair. The word came out of the Black Plague that decimated the world in the 1300s. Remember, as many as 100 million died during that time. We also got the word quarantine from those days because sailors were quarantined on their ships for 40 days. That's where we get quar. Someone began using the word respair to describe the first breath without a mask. By the way, yes, they wore horrible, terrible, smelly masks that were made of leather back then. The first sunrise and sunset and clouds they saw without fear of catching the disease from a neighbor and dying caused them to respair. Notice the word doesn't imply total and complete hope, just the beginning of it. I imagine neighbors who have been locked away inside for months seeing a woman outside her home staring at the sun and the clouds and taking that first deep breath of beautiful air. Or a father taking his son for a walk or a child playing in the yard and smelling flowers. And, and they hesitantly reaching for the doorknob, their feet moving forward. But then despair races through their mind. Then hope encourages them to take a step, but not without second-guessing themselves. Because they ask, has hope really returned? Jesus walks up to the man who was deaf and he says, so do you want to hear again? Now, the man who was deaf couldn't hear what Jesus was saying. Maybe he read his lips. Maybe he saw the compassion in his eyes. And somehow he says, yes. Jesus puts his finger into the man's ears, spat, and touched the man's tongue. Yeah, I know. Ew. And then he said, epitha. The man who had been deaf was now in the midst of despair, the return of hope after a period of despair. Part of despair is processing the past and the life lost and the things missed because those days and those things are gone forever and we cannot get them back. Here's the choice. Do we back into our homes, close the door, pull the curtains, and reject hope? Or do we hesitantly step out the door and begin to embrace a new world and a new life, knowing that it's not going to be easy? We tend to stop listening right after Jesus heals people in the Bible, maybe because we want to assume a hallmark ending where everything is perfect and the sun sets and life is good. But you know what? Rarely does normal just happen. Not for the man who is deaf, or any of the other people Jesus healed, and not for us either. There were so many questions, so many things to catch up on, so many things that didn't make sense. You see, life is still complicated, but it shouldn't keep us from living it out. Our losses and choices must be named and grieved for. As we hear those first words and take our first steps, we are reminded of our baptism, where we died to sin and its consequences. And we were raised up to live a life of faith, even if that life must be lived in the midst of chaos and pain and darkness 
until the day God takes us home to live with him in heaven forever. We are promised radical grace and enough loving compassion to leave despair behind and begin experiencing the, the, the return of hope. But the return of hope means it's not fully here yet. But we can see it and hear it and we know it's coming. And by the way, we also know nothing can stop it because that's the God we worship. We are no longer deaf to God's word. Isaiah said on that day, the deaf will hear the words of the document and out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. James says, if we're worried about where we stand with God, how he sees us, what he thinks of us, it's actually pretty simple to figure out. We just have to determine if we're just hearers of the word or if the words are getting to our heart, our soul our fingers, our toes, and our lips. Whenever my daughter Katie and I were out driving somewhere and I had allowed all the negative stuff going on to just smother me, and as a result, um, I was no longer smiling, I was just intent, and she was talking to me and I would just say things like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. She would put up with it for a little while and then she would plug in her phone and she would turn on the song Banjo by Rascal Flatts. And she would keep turning the volume up until I finally sang along and started to participate. So this past week when she went into labor three weeks early and was working through all the things that were happening and what it means to be a mom and the pain of the moment, and I couldn't be there for her, I did the only thing that I could do. I sent her the video, Banjo by Rascal Flats. Now, I'm not going to show you, but my son-in-law sent me a video of Katie singing along with the video at the top of her lungs in the hospital room. All the other patients and staff could hear the joy expressed in the way she was singing. Oh, and by the way, I should probably tell you, this was at 3 a.m. her time. To know if God's word made it past your ears, if you can hear, all you got to do is look at your fingers and toes. Listen to the words that come from your mouth. And by the way, if it isn't quite what you want it to be, if it doesn't express the joy that that you would love to express because you know that you might be a sinner, but you have a Savior and that you've got heaven to look forward to, invite Jesus to stick his fingers in your ears and spit and touch your tongue. Yeah, I know it's a little bit of a you, but you know what? That's how we get to despair. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.